expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. All right, nerds, we're going to be sinking our teeth into episode 171 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Another busy one because, Nick, we are not at all done talking about Castlevania. With spoilers ahead, by the way. I fucking hate you. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and that's okay. You just had to start off with a pun. That's okay. Yes, you're, you know, when you're, when you're rotting in hell, I'm going to be happy and... Uh, yeah, these, these puns are a one-way ticket there, so... You should know by some of the shit that we watch that I'm going to come back and haunt you anyway, so... Yeah. that? Worth it. <laughs> 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 but yeah, man, Castlevania, of course, hit Netflix on Friday, and... You know, we had Eddie Shankar on last week, and I got to say, four episodes for what they did, this is basically a, a two-hour pilot episode, and... You texted me something that really, really is a big thing of the show in that every episode, just because it's, you know, 24, 25 minutes, glides into one another. There's no, you know, longer season of, oh, there's filler here, there's filler there. It just whoop right into the next one, and it's just smooth, smooth transitions. That's the thing I love the most about this show, even even though there was a lot to love. The filler in here was zero. Everything mattered. Everything was so, so important, and it kept you glued as to, I don't care how good something is, if, if episodes are too long or if there's too many, your mind is going to wander sometimes. It's just going to happen. Even in the best of shows or movies, this is going to happen when there's a lot of filler. This, they cut the filler down to zero, and you just sat there glued the entire time to this story, and I thought that, that was really, really one of the biggest important things to this. Oh, exactly, and of course the story revolves around Castlevania Three. and I will say this, when it comes to the story and just what they do, one of my favorite things that they did that with the show, one of my favorite things was how Warren Ellis wrote Dracula, and mm-hmm. I will say this, the main reason being he was fine. He was living his life with his wife. They were in the countryside. They were living quietly. Then, of course, you get these religious people that come in, accuse her of witchcraft, even though she's studying science, burn her at a stake, and then you done did piss Dracula off. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where you understood why Dracula was doing what he was doing. Like, should he be killed because he's making it rain demons and blood? Of course, but... You, you see why he's doing it. You understand. You identify because they gave him that human element where, you know, I know your wife, if I had a girlfriend, it'd be the same way. You know, if something happened to them where they were brutally murdered by somebody, we, we'd stop at nothing to make sure that the, the people, you know, suffered and stuff like that. So you understood where they were coming and going with, with Dracula. So I love that. And, you want to talk about influence. Of course, this is really anime-influenced, and the scene when shit really starts to happen, when demons start flying, it's raining blood, you're seeing fire come from the sky, Attack on Titan, just in yep. terms of just the gore factor in there, and just, I love that Addy pretty much told us, you know, this is R-rated as fuck, and you see that passion he's had, he has 
for Wine to always make these animated, mature, adult-themed shows. Absolutely, and, uh, and the casting on this was absolutely... You mentioned Warren Ellis's writing. Graham McTavish, dude, as Dracula... Yeah. nailed it in so many different ways. Like you said, the emotional parts about him losing his wife and then just the flip of the switch of I am pissed off and I'm going to kill all of you. When he does those lines of I'm going to give you one year to get your affairs in order and then I'm killing everyone, I'm See, just sitting there with chill bumps on my arm. I like that too. I like that they didn't, again, they didn't make him evil to just because he's Dracula and he's a vampire. They gave him some humanistic qualities where he's like, you know what? I will give you a year to leave and, and escape my wrath. But after that, you're on your own. Yeah, so, pretty much. So he gave them fair warning. And I like when he first meets his wife in the beginning and she's talking about like, you know, I hear this castle is a place of knowledge. And he's like, well, what do you have to trade? And, he, you know, he's talking about, you know, he he's not dumb. He's like, you know, how about I take a bite out of you? But you could, you know, you could have you know, garlic in your bloodstream and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like he was smart and he was alert. I even like that his wife actually was giving him some shit too, which is great. You know, mm-hmm. like I've been here for how many minutes and you have not offered me a drink nor have taken my coat. So it's like, she had oh, no shit. fear at all. No, she didn't. And what I like too is like, you know, he, I, I'm paraphrasing the line, but what I think even though it was short lived from what we saw on screen, the fact of the line where he says where he's talking about, you know, she's you, his wife basically tells him, if you live like a human, they will treat you like one, basically, or they'll see you as one, and you'll fit in better. And then that, and then he just says, you know, I did this, and now he, you know, he sees a woman laying flowers at his burned cottage and his burned home, and he's just like, fuck this, it's it's over, and he, you know. Fire tornadoes his way into the city, into the square there. And I just want to say this. Uh, the elder, uh, Tony Amendola, who plays the elder, really, really sells the innocence about everything that they're doing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the bishop, Matt Fuhrer, oh, the way he yes. voiced the bishop, where, again, people, I know some people say they didn't like it because they're too evil. They, weren't, they were just, you know, one-dimensional. But in a sense... Yeah, think about it. Back then, people were really that way. They were these religious fanatics who, you know, believed in witchcraft and believed, you know, and wanted to punish people who who studied it and believed in it and stuff like that. I mean, even there's that scene where they're burning Dracula's wife at the stake and like his second in command. It looks like he's talking about like, well, I work in the sciences, and he just gives him this look of like, you do what? He goes, oh no, 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 not not like extreme and right. believe, you know, stuff like that. And that's what you need to realize too is that science was witchcraft back right. then. Because you fear the most, but you do not understand. And back then, they didn't understand anything about science at all. So all they knew was the church, and that's what led them in their lives. And, you know, you see somebody trying to do something else, and they did not like that at all. So these are the kind of things that just happened. I mean, it, it's a pretty good history lesson, along with a pretty darn good story. And then you enter the Belmont family, who was also excommunicated from the church and the town that they were in because of practices of possible magic and and other witchcraft and stuff like that. So then you bring in Richard Armitage, who's the last son of the Belmont family, Trevor Belmont, and how he's kind of out of it. And he's like, I just don't give a shit anymore. And then he's kind of forced to give a shit. And then you find out, wait, he gave a shit all along. He just didn't realize it. Well, the way I like the, how he structured his character, especially when we first see him. Now, when we first see him, of course, in the bar and he's drunk or he's pretending to be drunk, 
we've seen that before in different TV shows and movies when the main protagonist is shown and, and, you know, and stuff like that. But what I loved was how they gave that backstory of, yeah, he's very apathetic in terms of really, you know, helping people or just his to- overall tone, how he kind of carries himself because, you know, his family for, e- for years, and he talks about this, how, yeah, we fought monsters for many years. And what was our reward? Getting excommunicated by the church. Yep, exactly. And it's so like, oh, what have you done for me lately? Kind right. Of thing. And so he, that's why he's very much like, I'm going to pay for my ale. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go find a nice tree to, you know, lay under and then just leave me alone. And then there are times where he will have that thing where, okay, as you mentioned, he, he does care. He wants to save people. He'll do it reluctantly. He'll be like, fine. Like when he has to go save, uh, you know, the, the, the elders, his grandchild, who turns out to be his, his granddaughter, Sifa, uh, you know, I will say this, the way that Trevor carries himself in that, you're like, Okay, he does have this kind of heart. He does care, even if he doesn't really show he, it a lot. He finds it, I think, more than anything else. He finds yeah. it as he goes, and he remembers what his family's legacy was. And he, he went to the point where he was upset about how, like, you're still pissed about this? After all this time, you can't just leave me alone and let me drink my ale and leave? He, he turned that later on in the show to, you know what, damn it? This is my family's legacy, so let's take down some monsters and some vampires and do this. Right, and then also I like about Belmont's character too is the fact that, and again, this is really important that they stress a lot of stuff in the dialogue that he talks about when he's in the bar and he's getting ready to fight those like three, four guys in the bar and he says, I've fought monsters, you guys ain't shit basically. So I like that. I like how when he fought humans – they didn't present much of a challenge because he's fought Cyclopses, he's fought vampires, demons from hell. You know, this is his whole entire life is fighting these hellish creatures. And, yeah, so when you see a, a, a priest with a dagger, with a thief's dagger, it's not going to be much of a, a, a challenge, really. And I know when they he pulled out that whip, you text me and you're like, I fanboyed out and lost it. Yep, and that's what that's the other thing they did too. They didn't give you everything in one episode. Right. You get like Dracula in the first episode, and then you kind of start to get the Belmonts, and then you get the whip in another episode, and then you get him removing his cape and showing the family crest in the next episode, even though we did see that earlier on in the show. He just he went full Belmont later on in the show. They gave you those wow moments throughout the course of the show and didn't put it all into one episode. So I loved how they stretched that out as well. And of course, when you get into that fourth episode, late third, early fourth episode, you get to see Alucard again, who was, of course, voiced by James Callis. And, of course, is Dracula's son, and he joins Belma, and he also joins Sifa on their mission. And I like that. And if you want to go into the second season, I'm I'm all amphibious, man, because, of course, second season was announced. Hey, we're picking up for a second season. Rumor has it's going to be eight episodes which I think would be perfect, no more, no less. And if you keep it to that 25, 30-minute you know, mark, I think you're good. Yeah, man, and I think the Addyverse is well on its way to happening. I mean, we've got this, we've got Assassin's Creed to look forward to, more, more, more. Netflix, pay attention. Let's make this happen. Come on. I just want to point out one scene real quick before we move on to what we're reading. The church scene. When the demon walks in, he's confronting oh the bishop, yep. and the bishop tells him, you are not allowed in God's house. God is here. And then the demon just goes, God is not here. And you're like, 
Oh shit! At that point, you pee your pants and you run away. <laughs> yeah, as, so, as fast as you can, as far as you can. So I know we don't really do ratings for certain seasons, but you know it's going to probably be a year or so before we get season two. So what's your overall rating for the first season? I gotta say, I'm not going to rehash anything that we've already talked about. I gotta give this a solid ten out of ten potential garlic in the bloodstream because it was just had me captivated the entire time and i was just so happy to see castlevania on any screen in this format and, and addy and everyone worn else that was involved did such a great job again i'm not gonna rehash everything because i think we've pretty much laid out how great the, the voice cast was the animation was great the fights were fluid i love this a lot i cannot wait for season two i'm giving this 10 out of 10 poor fucks who lose both eyes <laughs> yeah, that was not good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to do it for our discussion about Netflix's Castlevania. Again, the first four episodes are streaming, so go watch it now. And again, go back to last week's show after this week's show as to our interview with executive producer Eddie Shankar. But come up next is what we're reading. Find out what books we decided to review this week Kind of Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Eddie Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's that time of the week where we pull out our long boxes, we discuss what we're reading, and of course, James went first last week with his review of Centipede. I'm going to go first with my review of Harbinger Renegade number five. This is part one of the new Massacre arc. Now, I will say this. We get emails every week from publishers with books, and they say, hey, don't, you know, spoil this or whatever like that. I have never seen a warning Basically, <laughs> highlighting, you can say this, you can say that, but if you tend to say this about the book, or what happens here in the book, the person that dies in this is going to be you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and that's, and you know, we're having a little fun with that, but at the same time, it's right. like, if you even hint at right. who dies, we are coming for you kind of thing. And of course, that's not what we do here, so... It's okay. It's all right. Don't worry. But uh, let the tap dancing begin, I suppose. Whew. Well, let's see. I got my shoes on, so I'm ready to go. So this book, I can say this, is written by Rafer Roberts. <laughs> Are you sure you can say that? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. All right. It's, that's fine. Go it's ahead. on the first page, so it's not much of a spoiler. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure every like comic book info site has this information. I, yeah, I, th- I think that's pretty safe. Uh, the art's done by Derek Robertson. Inks by Richard Clark. Colors by Diego Rodriguez, and letters are, of course, done by Simon Boland, who does a lot of valiant stuff. And I will say this. Oh, boy, this is going to be tougher than I thought. Every time <laughs> you say, I, I will say this, I'm thinking, can you? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I will say this about the book. The art, first of all, there's that warning in the beginning that says, this has some mature content. It does not lie when it, when it says that. I mean, there are some a lot of moments where I'm like, holy shit. And the story about this, of course, basically you have this, this group of Marines, this group of, of police officers who are basically invading this city, I, was, I should say. The, this major city, they, they get here because they want to stop this threat. And, or at least they perceive it to be. And then from there, shit just goes haywire and i will say this when i first read this book my initial reaction was holy shit rafer roberts holy shit the the stuff he does with his writing 
really me, and this is something I know both of us read a lot of Valiant books. I think we read pretty much almost all of Valiant stuff. Really made me go, oh my God, they went there with this. And just when I thought that they couldn't turn on the corner in terms of just shock and oh my God, they did. And it didn't seem out of place. It didn't seem clunky. It made sense. And it just shocked the hell out of me. And it is only amplified by the art by Robertson, Clark, and Rodriguez. Because, oh my God, just, again, you want to talk about brutal, you want to talk about just story and what this means. Remember, this leads up to Harbinger Wars 2. So what this means going into that, pretty exciting. And it's also pretty, pretty awesome. And, of course, I'm not going to say who dies in this because that's, Something that parents to email just warned about, and I don't want a light showing on my chest. And after you know, after I announce right. that, but what they do with it, I will say this: it really leaves an impact, and you see why they had to put a warning in front of this book when you first get it. If you're somebody who has not read Harbinger Renegade up to issue five, you might be a little bit lost in terms of the story and some of the characters. But I think that if you probably start with issue – I mean start with issue one and, of course, work your way up. But if you're somebody who says, you know what, I don't have a lot of time. I just want to start in this new arc. Yeah, you should be fine. I think that, you know, again, there might be some things that might be lost on you. But overall, this is a solid, solid arc. I am excited for it. This is a definite pull for me. Again, Valiant just has been hitting it out of the park with all their stuff. And, again, just from the art to the writing – Everything about this, you want to talk about, you know, James and I talk about this all the time. Where you get those, we text her with the holy shits attached to them. This is one of those books. This is a book where you're going to read it and you're going to be like, holy shit, this just happened. And Valiant's been really good about that lately. And it makes you, I know that they have times where they kind of reset everything, but it never feels that way. And it makes you look forward to every new story that they're going to tell. And sometimes when they go back to a number one issue, it's not really a number one issue because they're continuing a story in some way based on something that's happened, but it's so fluid. You don't even feel like it's restarting at all. So when you get something like this happening, like you said, leading up to Harbinger War, you know that Everything's going to have a purpose. Everything's going to happen for a reason. And that's one of the things I love about what Valiant's doing right now. So far, I don't see any red lights. I don't have bloodshot knocking on my door. There's no, like, anything, dots or anything on my body. So I think I'm good. So uh, uh, <laughs> I think I survived this review. So before I say anything more, uh, what did you read this week? I, I will pass this baton to you as I whew, take a deep <laughs> deep, deep breath out. Take a deep, take a double check for ninjas while I talk about Wynone Earp Season Zero from IDW Comics. Whoa, whoa, whoa James, James, James. What, I, what? Have to, I have to, to interrupt you. I don't know how they did, but they found me. Who? Who? What do you think? Valiant! Run for it, Murky! So this is the issue one of the Why Not Our Season Zero from IDW, of course, written by our buddies Bo Smith and Tim Rozon. That story by, it's actually written by Bo Smith. Angel Hernandez does the art. Jay photos on colors and then letters by Krista Meisner. Now, I think saying Why Not Earp has a past is a little, uh, putting it lightly, but, uh, Let's just say that because of the events that have happened in, in previous parts of the story, this isn't really a spoiler that she's back home in purgatory. If you know about Wine on Earp, you kind of know that story anyway. 
But here's a part of the story that very early on gets interesting. And even the people that in her inner circle find out something about Winona is that she has another past and she has another, let's just say she has another family. I can say that without spoiling anything. And what we learn about this family is going to be the basis for the story going forward. And I love the way that you kind of get a flashback here that doesn't feel like a flashback. It's It kind of feels like it's in real time, but it's telling you why what happens, one of the things that happens at the beginning of this book actually matters and has an impact. And then when that's over, you find out how that's going to lead the story going forward. So the fact that they're calling this season zero makes perfect sense. But one of the things that I love that uh, Tim and Bo do in this issue is you know the dynamic from Why Not Earth, whether you've watched the show or read the comic, of course, there's a couple different characters in the comic that they're on the current show right now. Please have Valdez on Why Not Earth on Sci-Fi eventually. Hopefully they can make that happen. But the clash when they find out about her other family in the past to her family, actual family now, is really, really interesting and, and kind of brings in a little bit of tension in some points. And I like how... That needs to be fleshed out, and I don't think it's over in this issue. I think we'll see this pop up again, but I really like that little curveball that they threw in here. And the fact that, at the same time, you know how you've got family or friends that are like family. You fight, but you're you're still family kind of thing, you know, and, and you're always going to rally around each other. And that just seems to be Winona. It, whether, again, it be on the show or in the comic, that's Winona. She just finds a way to have those closest to her rally around her. So, I mean, to say that this book is classic Winona and classic Bo Smith absolutely positively is. And then you, you put Tim Rose on in there, and you can kind of see in certain lines. Of course, I'm not going to give you any lines because I don't want to spoil it. But you see in certain lines, you're like, okay, Tim had to influence that one a little bit. That had to be one of those things that was suggested or brought in by Tim. So the team, ever since Bo and Tim started writing together in these comics, you can tell there's there's still there's a lot of love there. You could tell that, that, that the way that they work together, they both care about these characters so much. Of course, Bo having created the series, and now Tim, you know, falling in love with the characters as they've been working together. You can tell that this book's being taken even to another level. Bo already had it on such a high level when he was writing it before. Now it's it's even taking it up even more of a notch. And then you add Angel Hernandez's art in friggin beautiful i mean probably one of the best books of art that idw has going right now and idw has some good books as far as art's concerned but interior art for this book is absolutely fantastic and of course you've got the show variants and stuff that you can get as well so there's a ton of those things that you can do but man there's a reason why don't why winona erp should be in your pull box because it's stuff like this it's the family dynamic you still get the action you get a nice backstory on winona that even if you're not familiar with the characters you get enough of a backstory here like you were saying you could jump into this book you don't necessarily know who the characters are and why they care about each other so much the the core characters but you get the backstory from what happened in Winona's past, and it kind of brings everybody together anyway. So this is an actual jumping on point. If you've never read a Winona Herb comic, this is a good place for you to jump in. Or if maybe you've just been a fan of the show 
and haven't read a comic before, this would be a good way for you to jump in because the char- there are characters you know in this, but there's also a couple of characters you don't, but you'll fall in love with them instantly, so it doesn't really matter. You okay now? I think I think I lost them. You still have one arm, right? Um, I don't know. Let me, let me check. One... Okay, I'm good. I'm okay, good. that's good. Okay. That's good. In case you didn't know, that was a pull for me. I know you missed it, but but it, why not up season zero? Pull, put it in your box. Well, that's going to do it for what we're reading, but uh, whew. coming up next, we're going to be reviewing Spider-Man Homecoming. Stay tuned. Oh, I need a water. This is Warren Simons, the editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. If you didn't get a chance to make it to Homecoming when you were younger, well, now is your chance because Spider-Man is finally with the MCU in his first solo movie with Spider-Man Homecoming. And Nick, I actually think that we can kind of agree that a couple of our fears about this movie initially kind of weren't valid after all. Well, of course, our two biggest fears, at least mine, being that we thought that this was going to be the Iron Man show and it wasn't. I like what they did with Tony Stark and how they had him more as a true mentor role he is in the comics where he appears every once in a while i believe three four times he appeared throughout the movie and the second one for me also was oh my god this is gonna be so filled with villains and i don't know what's gonna happen and i like that they didn't do that either yeah vulture was the main guy but also tony stark was kind of a villain in this as well as you know you also had the shocker but the shocker was more just what he should he should be he is, you know, this very small, minute character, basically. But at the same time, they gave him his moments, and I think that that was what was good with what they did with the Shocker. They gave him, well, the second one anyway, they gave him enough yeah. of his moments to be able to make him not seem so lowbrow, but at the same time, you combine him with the Vulture, and I gotta say, man, what they did with the vulture in this for for a villain's always kind of been kind of near the bottom tier of main villains for Spider-Man. I, I don't know if it was Michael Keaton or the writer or what it was, but what they did with the vulture overall actually made him seem like a legit formidable villain, which has not been Marvel's strong suit lately in the MCU. Well, and here's the thing: this is of course a spoiler-filled review. We just want to get to that right now, but yeah, and here's why I like. And we talked about this with Castlevania and how they, you know, make Dracula human. Well, in this, they give him, they give Tombs a very human-esque reason for becoming the Vulture because you know he was this guy. You know, they're doing this whole cleanup with New York, and they're you know everything like that. They're collecting scrap and stuff like that. And what happens? damage control comes in and he finds out that oh tony stark is behind us and he has a great line where he says you know these people cause all this damage i'm paraphrasing this line but he's talking about how you know these people caused all these damage he's talking about the avengers he's like but now they're getting paid to clean it up he's like mm-hmm. what you know so basically they made him as this guy where he did he wasn't selling these shatari these alien tech weapons because he was evil. He did it because he's like, listen, I have a family and I can't provide for my family this way because everything is now in the government's hands. So now I'm going to have to just, I have to go this route. I don't want to, but 
it's lucrative, so I'm going to take it. And then that sort of took him over as things went on, and that's when he started becoming more and more evil and started crossing more and more lines kind of thing. Not that, you know, selling weapons to bad people isn't crossing a line, but he certainly started taking it up a notch as things went along, and I like how they gave us that progressive kind of building to him becoming the ultimate villain that he was even towards the end of the movie. So I agree. I think that the fact that... They give him a humanized reason for that, and the fact that, you know, the whole thing with Tony Stark, that brings us back to, you know, are you Team Cap, or are you Team Iron Man, and the, and the whole, you know, heroes creating their own villains kind of thing, and they kind of backdoored away to have Iron Man create a Spider-Man villain, which I thought was kind of a neat idea. Yeah, and of course, Tony Stark, I mean, really, if you think about it, he's been the big bad guy in the whole MCU. I mean, he created Ultron. He had the whole thing that happened in Civil War. Then, of course, the thing with the Vulture. So he's pretty much, at least since, like, Phase 2, has basically been, you know, the the catalyst for a lot of the bad shit that's happened in the MCU. Yeah, and people still love him for it. That's the funny thing. Especially right. in, my, in my theater, every time he came up on the screen, it was laughs. And I'm like, you realize what he's been doing these last few movies, movies right? I mean, I like Iron Man as well, but... If you really take a step back. One thing I felt that was really smart, too, and I want to talk a little bit more about Vulture's crew, is I like that they brought the Tinkerer in to yeah. have him, like, make the weapons and the suit and stuff like that, which was great. And, again, Vulture, there's that third act twist where you find out that, hey, he's Liz's dad, who, of course, Peter Parker wants to date. He wants to date Liz. He's taking her to Homecoming. And just that moment when he is... Adrian Toomes, when he's not the Vulture, he's just like this, comes off as very nice guy, mm-hmm. and he's talking to Peter, and he's joking with him, and then you get to this scene in the car where he figures out who Peter really is, and he's talking about, like, this is, I think, where he really fully turns, is when he says, you know, you're going to walk in that th- through those doors, and you're going to show my daughter a good time, and you let me go my way, or else I'm going to kill everybody you mm-hmm. fucking love. And this and is where just, Michael Keaton comes through and this is why you need somebody like Michael Keaton because he played that so so well it just it just reminded me why I love Michael Keaton so much in right. so many different movies because he has that switch that he just flips and he's just I mean it was just so formidable and he just he owns Peter in that moment absolutely positively 100% owns him I don't care about the age difference you can talk and about what, that all you want and what I like owned him and what I liked about him, too, is at the end, of course, the stinger, or at least one of the stingers at the end, where Peter saves his life, of course, from his suit in the third act, and then he's in prison. He comes across Matt Gargan, who, of course, is a scorpion, and Gargan's trying to say, you know, Gargan's trying to get info about Parker because he says, hey, I, I, where is it that you know who Spider-Man is? And Toomes says, if I knew who he was, he'd be dead already. And him, it was kind of like that, you know, could it be him saving Peter or could it be kind of like, okay, they might go Sinister Six around with future films and Spider-Man is all his. It could be that too, or he, it could be the whole, you know, Redeeming. my, my daughter still cares about this kid. It's, you know, to some level now that, you know, it's done and my family's broken up. Do I really need to do one more thing to my daughter? Kind of thing. It could, right. it could also be that, even though we kind of see that parting of the ways uh, between Liz and Peter, but she still says the whole, you know, I, whatever's going on with you, I hope it works out and you figure it out kind of thing. So there's there's obviously still a little something there, and I doubt that they'll go back to that. But if you're talking about Toombs' character and the fact that 
you know, when it's all said and done, he clearly cares about his family. I think he's he feels like he's done enough damage at this point. And speaking of Peter, let's just talk about Spider-Man. Of course, Tom Holland back as the role of Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man. And I like how the movie starts off with his POV movie where it's basically yeah. Civil War. And it's yeah. him getting recruited, him getting to the fight with Captain America and everybody else. And it fast-forwards a little bit, which is kind of a pl- big plot hole in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's like, wait a minute, this is supposed to fast-forward like X amount of years later, but yet it starts off here, what's going on? But that aside... My favorite thing about this is this is the first time we actually got a high school Spider-Man that was actually believable as high school Spider-Man. And I like the fact that they showed, they made a big point of, yes, he is a super genius. Yes, he is a superhero. He literally has all these powers and everything. But at the end of the day, he's still a 15-year-old kid that fucks up. Yep, and a lot, by the way, throughout this movie, a lot. And he, you know, has to deal with the fact that he's bailing on his friends and his best friend Ned at some point and, and, and Liz at some point. And there's just so many levels to that. And then what happens in Washington, D.C., they give him that 15-year-old flawed mentality. And I kind of, the scene with him and Ned in the hotel room in D.C., where he talks about not wanting to be treated like a kid while he's jumping on the bed, I thought right. was a little bit more... Showing then you might even realize because I think that that was kind of the moment where they where they kind of tell you that, look, he's still a kid. And at 15 years old, you still have that, you know, kind of childlike mentality for a, for a lot of people. You know, you're not fully matured yet. So you're going to do stuff like jump on the bed and throw temper tantrums and hissy fits every now and then. And they brought that in, but they didn't make it annoying either. That's what I like. They didn't make him annoying. They made him flawed. So I think that that was really great how they did that. And Tom Holland overall. The kid's Spider-Man, okay? He's Spider-Man. He's Peter Parker. I mean, this is one of those rare moments where you find the right person for the job, you know, kind of like they did with with Tony Stark, with Robert Downey Jr. Tom Holland's Spider-Man, and I I have absolutely no doubt about that in my mind, especially now. I like that I'm building on something you just said. I like that they reminded you that he is a 15-year-old boy still, and they didn't, like, do the whole... Ah, he's still 15. See? See? Mm-hmm. He's, you know, they didn't, they didn't right. like, annoyingly remind you. They put in little things like jumping on the bed, having that mindset of, you know, I'm sick of being treated like a kid, but really, you know, Ned's like, but you are a kid, and he has this, you know, you know, when we were teenagers, we had the mindset of, we know better than our parents. I don't care who you are. At some point, you thought, I know that my mom mm-hmm. or my dad or whomever raised you. You know, you knew better. And that's just part of growing up and going through puberty and being a teenager. So he had that perfect mindset. And throughout the film, I liked how you saw him kind of struggle with powers. One thing I liked that was I think was really important was, this is something that was part of the comic, where when he's swinging, they didn't have it to where, like, he's constantly, like, going, you know, smoothly transitioning, swinging, stuff like that. He's, like, crashing through tree houses. Right. He's, you know shooting his web and there's nothing there so it's like again he's learning because you gotta remember he has only been spider-man for not that very long so right. he has to learn plus he has a new suit so he's getting learned the you know the customize that all like the 500 plus web combinations so it really is you know important that we as viewers get that whole feeling like not only is is Peter growing in Spider-Man, but we're learning as well. We're like, oh, okay, so this is you know stuff that happens here. So it's nice to kind of go along that path 
And, you know, this is, of course, a, a series they want to do many movies for where we're going to finally kind of get that, you know, because you have Captain America, you have Tony Stark, all these people who are like in their 30s and older. We're going to finally get a hero that we can grow with on the big screen. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, and I think that watching him go through those growing pains, I would ra- I'm glad they went that route. You I mean they completely glossed over the origin other than just mentioning it really quickly. I love that they did that. No mention of what happened with Uncle Ben at all. I actually like that they skipped that too because we've got enough of that. We know what's happened. We don't need to go through that again. So instead, they focus on the part of his first becoming Spider-Man of stuff like that, where he's swinging into sheds and, and you know crashing in front of little girls' tents and making them scream kind of thing. So we're going through that and we're going through the struggles of him being a high school kid and like the principal, when he gets in the principal's office, he says, you're a good kid. You just need to, you know, keep your nose out of trouble kind of thing. And I like the fact that they played up more of the immature aspect in the origin than anything else. It was a nice change of pace. Did you catch the Howling Commando thing when he was with the principal, the, the little Easter egg there? I did. I did catch that. That was, that was actually pretty awesome. But I mean, this movie, I think, really did a good job of really capitalizing the high school aspect in ways that the past two series couldn't do for a variety of reasons. And it just felt realistic. It felt, you know, all these kids that were in the movie were really, really good. I mean, I say kids, but they're like, you know, Tom Holland's 21. Well, in you know, the movies, they yeah, In the movie, they, they were. They so. really come across as realistic. You know, they're not Joe Magnarello, age like 35, in the first Spider-Man movie trying to play an 18-year-old Flash right. Thompson, you know. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I mean, the chemistry was there and stuff like that. And I, I, I like what they did at the end of the movie where Aunt May finds out that Peter's Spider-Man. That was great. I, I like that, you know, and because in the comics, she does find out that Peter's Spider-Man and, you know, she's really against it. They kind of then she kind of in later in the comics has this whole mindset of, listen, agree to disagree. I don't like it, but. If you yeah. want to do it, go ahead. Yeah. And here's the thing. It's kind of like now she saw him, you know, crawling in and stuff like that. So he could still say, oh, well, this is just the suit doing it. So she might not know he actually has the powers. But the fact of the matter is that this really brings to light the whole what the Stark initiative or the Stark internship really is. Mm-hmm. Really is going to set a nice, I think, uh, plot point between her, Peter, and even Tony Stark going forward to the next movie. Now, that being said, there are a couple of things that I didn't like, and it wasn't from a writing, it was kind of from a writing's perspective, but it was more of Marvel not taking that jump into the pool, and I hate that. The first thing being, of course, Don Glover's character is the Prowler. That's who he is. Now, he's not in costume, but by his name, that's who he is. Mm -hmm. And he makes mention when he's being interrogated by Spider-Man, I have a nephew that lives around here. Miles Morales is his nephew. Right. So, listen, if we do get a Miles Morales in the MCU, that's going to be great. My main concern, though, is that Marvel is like, oh, yeah, he's here, but we're not probably going to do anything with him. It's it's kind of like, like, I didn't need to see a five-year-old Miles or a seven-year-old Miles, but... When you have when you're when you're making an animated Spider-Man movie based around Miles and you're kind of like not committed to putting him in the actual MCU, why even introduce that character at all? Why even have the Prowler in here at all? Why even have that line of him saying, 
oh, I have a nephew that lives here at all. It makes zero sense to me. Yeah, it's cheap fan service, and I didn't like that that either. I mean, if you're going to give me a 15-year-old Spider-Man, which I'm glad you did, thank you for finally doing that, you cannot bring up Miles Morales. You can't just because you have a, you know fans clamoring for Miles Morales in some sort of role in the MCU or even in any any Marvel movies at all. Don't give me that because I know how old he is and I know how long it's going to be before this is even a thing. So I don't know right. why you decided to go ahead and do that. I mean, what are we talking about, like Phase 8 at this point? I mean, right. I'm sure you want to bring him in eventually, but... It's it's like focus on what you're doing here because you've got something here and Marvel's usually pretty good at that when they know they've got something like Guardians for example when they know they've got something they absolutely positively run with it and you can't see this movie and not think we've got something with Tom Holland you don't have to try and rush things with Miles Morales let this play out more and then eventually because we will never not have Marvel movies at this point Eventually, you'll get to Miles, but it's too soon to start teasing that now. And my second issue is with Zendaya's character at the end. And she does – now, she's named the Bay Team Captain, and she goes – she has the line of, people call me MJ. To me, that's fucking cheap because – and that's bullshit. Listen, I have no problem with her. If they want to make her Mary Jane, that's great. It's fine. But her name is Michelle in this, and Kevin Feige was like, "Oh, well, she's a you know an original MCU character, and we might have you know her be this you know MJ, the MJ of the universe." It's like, no, 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 fucking no. Now I understand that Peter, and I know Peter didn't meet MJ until college, but to me, again, it's that whole cheap fan service, dipping your toe in water, not diving fully the fuck in. Yeah, now don't get me wrong. I actually liked her character. A lot of the laughs oh, so I got, I, I the loved laughs, what they yeah, did with her. Yeah, a lot of the laughs I got were from her character, so I really did enjoy her character. But I think it frustrated me more because you didn't need to go there. I actually right. was watching right. this movie thinking, I don't need Mary Jane. It's not right now, of course. I don't need. I mean, you've already. The, the, I think the Liz dynamic was really, really good, but it, this is not something that. Even this character of Spider-Man Peter Parker needs right now. He's still trying to figure out, you know, himself and, you know, is, is being is how young he is. And like you said, he doesn't even meet MJ until college anyway. So I agree. It was another one of those things where I, I actually liken it to the Miles Morales situation where it's like you didn't need to give me right. this. But because you wanted to get, in, a, in wrestling terms, a cheap pop from the fans... You went ahead and threw that out there. If you, I mean, if you want to develop a relationship between the two of them and make her an original MJ character, I guess that's fine. But I don't understand why you couldn't have just kept her Michelle. If you could make her the MJ of this universe, but just let her be called Michelle. I don't see what's so wrong with that. My problem is if they want to go to a relationship thing, there was really, like, outside of her mocking him, kind of, there was really no chemistry between the two. So I'm kind of like, if you make a relationship out of that, that's kind of awkward and feels right. sort of forced. And there wasn't supposed to be. I think that was the main point. That's why I thought it was weird too. But my thing is, again, my main thing is, is they want to make her Mary Jane, that's fine. But don't do the whole people call me MJ because to me that's just fucking cheap. Because it's like, you know, it, it's that's, that's all it is to me. It's just... With the whole Miles Morales thing, it's just to get fans either riled up or excited or whatever. You know, Peter Parker's going to have his love interest that he's had in the comics. 
But to me, it's just a line that shouldn't have been written because it's just like you could have had this whole dynamic if you want to make it between them. Sure, it probably would have felt forced, more like it will be feel forced. But if you want to have that dynamic, that's fine. But don't put that line in there and not expect people to be like, okay, way to not way to way to way to take a bitch move and not be fully committed to this whole Mary Jane concept at least. You know? Right. And here's the deal with it: How, what have we been so critical about Marvel with in the past? And it's creating original characters, right? Whether it be, you know, in any form of entertainment that they have. And finally they go ahead and they do it, but then they cheapen it by saying, people call me MJ. And I'm like, no, you you had something and now you're yanking it away from me. You know what I mean? Well, one of the main reasons why I love Zendaya's character so much is because of that comedic aspect that, you know, she's really smart with her mouth and stuff like that and the things that she says. And, you know, like, you don't have attention. Oh, no, but I like seeing people, you know, I like drawing people in bad times or whatever. And so it's like just the way that she delivers those lines is great. My main concern is that, and this is why I'm so against her being this Mary Jane type role, I feel that by turning her into a love interest, they cheapen the character and they distill the character. Well, you certainly change the character, I think. I mean, I think you see her evolve over the over the movie as well. I think she her character definitely evolves. She definitely becomes more... I don't know if personable is the right word, but she opens up more, I guess, is the best way I could possibly put it. So you do see her change a little bit, but at the same time, you're right. I, don't don't give me this and then change it for the purposes of making her a love interest, because I don't think we're going to see Peter change to be more like something that something or someone that she'd be interested in. So, James, we talked about Spider-Man, we talked about Zendaya, we talked about the other kids, talked about Aunt May and Vulture and his crew. Let's talk about the Stingers. And something that's been a real – people can call it a nitpick, but for me it's just more of an annoyance really. I'm getting kind of sick and tired of these villains being given name tags and version of – Hey, you're Joker, so tattoo Joker on your stomach. Hey, you're Scorpion, we're gonna tattoo a scorpion on your neck. It's two on the fucking nose, guys. This isn't fucking yeah. Kinkos. It's the fucking Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DCEU. And I realize you're making these movies for everybody, and not everybody's gonna know these characters, but you're right. You don't need to give them name tags. Let them find out about who these characters are if they're not familiar by how about this? fleshing out their story like you did with Vulture and explaining who they are and what their name is and doing it that way instead of saying, oh, that guy must be Scorpion because he's got a Scorpion tattooed on his neck. Come on. Well, also, if you look really closely, I think in his right hand, you can kind of see what looks to possibly be part of his Scorpion tail or part of his Scorpion thing he might be yeah, building. I don't yeah. know. But for me, it's just like it's too on the nose. Like, it could, all you need to do is write... You know, in dialogue, that Toombs just says his name. He just says Matt Gargan. That's all he says because right. he's already alluded to in the movie. He talks about, hey, we still have to do that Gargan deal. So yep. you know he's in the movie. So instead of putting this fucking tattoo on his neck, you could just have Scorpion just say the guy's name, and there you go. You know, if people don't know who he is, there's the Google machine. Google it. I don't think Miles Morales was going to wear a name tag, and the Prowler certainly didn't. So. <laughs> You don't need to do that every time. It's like, okay, so you're going to use Scorpion in a future movie. We get it. Don't don't shove it out there with the Scorpion tattoo. Donald Glover has Prowler on his license plate. That would be the worst idea for a license plate ever, by the way. <laughs> so did you get a look at the plates? Yeah, it said Prowler on it. Well, that seems stupid. That's like wet bandits. <laughs> Pretty much. But the second one, I will say this, the second uh, stinger at the end 
I thought was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant trolling by Marvel. And I know Sony also did this too, but it's Marvel Studios to, for, more for me. Sony, you just help with the marketing and everything else like that to me. So this is a fully a Marvel movie. But I think it's just brilliant to have Captain America go on there, talk about patience. And as he's talking, I'm like, oh my God, he's fucking mocking and trolling all the people that wait for not just like Marvel movies, but like you go see Terminator, you uh-huh. go see a Disney movie or something like that, and you're expecting the stinger. You know, that's something Mar- Marvel's problem. You know, Marvel is something that Marvel's created where. You know, I used to work in a movie theater, and you get these people that go watch these movies. For example, it was like a Woody Allen movie, and I had to clean out a theater, and people were like, oh, well, there might be a stinger at the end. And I'm like, it's a fucking Woody Allen movie. There's nothing <laughs> at the end. Like, you know, <laughs> it's just Marvel stingers have kind of been the uh, thorn in, in theater workers' yeah. sides for many years now. Yeah. But but I loved it, though, man. It was I thought it was pretty funny. That was I laughed more at that than anything else, and that's not a knock on the movie, but that was really funny. And I thought that was a one hundred percent troll job on Guardians too. After all, Guardi, all the stingers that Guardians yeah. the Galaxy Two had, and the fact that it just came out, complete one hundred percent troll job on them. And I actually think it was good because we haven't seen very many examples of Marvel being able to laugh at themselves, and this was one of them. So I thought that was kind of a good sign, actually. So, that being said, let's get our ratings for the movie, and I'll have you go first. Now, I, I think that, you know, lost in the fact that, the, that there is a, a lot of good things about this movie. There were a couple bad things, and we touched on those, but I definitely think the good outweighs the bad. But I, I know a lot of people were, were, have been trying to compare this to Wonder Woman. I don't think you compare it. I, if, you know, if I had to, I'd say Wonder Woman was probably better still. But at the same time... I didn't get that feeling of, like I did with Wonder Woman when I walked out of the theater and I was like, that was the 100% perfect adaptation of that character that you could do. I think Tom Holland was fantastic, but the movies as a whole, I think that Spider-Man Homecoming just felt a little, little bit short of that perfection that so many people seem to think that it did achieve. At the same time, I think the secondary characters were great. Nothing really felt forced except for the things that we glaringly pointed out a couple of minutes ago, so... I gotta say, I'm gonna rate this high, but I'm not gonna rate it too high. I'm gonna give this eight Karen commands out of ten. My take on this movie is, of course, we highlighted a couple of negative things. I agree with James that the negatives are outweighed by the positives of those movies. There were so many of them. You can compare this to Wonder Woman. For me, Wonder Woman was better. I liked Wonder Woman more because of just the setting and what they did with the setting and just everything else they had to do with Wonder Woman as a whole. I think Wonder Woman is still my, I'll say as of right now, we're we're in July. So as of July 13th, 14th, I'm going to say that Wonder Woman is still my, my movie of the year so far, but Spider-Man is probably in that two to three range. But I will say this, the, I was afraid them putting Vulture in because you know we talked about when we saw the trailer months ago and we're like really you put the Vulture in there he's a tier four villain he's not really the main thing I like the twist they gave on him I felt that that really added an extra dimension not only to his and Peter Parker's his relationship but Peter's and Liz's relationship as well because you know it's that whole thing of that whole superhero thing of like you know the superhero wants to have a normal life in a sense is one aspect and they can't have that for whatever reason. So I felt that that added an extra dimension of kind of tension and a little bit of irony as well. But 
overall, this for me, I, I liked it. Will I see it again in the theater? Maybe, but I liked what they did with this. For me, I think since ever since really Guardians, that Marvel, I think, hopefully learned how to do their movies and make them better and kind of get away from that formula. I felt that one of the biggest parts of this movie was you had that uh, going back to the 1960s, I believe it was 1966, issue 33, where Peter's trapped under that rubble and you have that iconic Ditko moment. I felt it was really, really important. I felt really, really add to his character. To me, this is 9 out of 10 meals Aunt May gets for free. <laughs> yeah, that is a pretty neat trick. that's gonna do it for our review of spider-man homecoming coming up next something from my childhood is making a comeback in the comic book form find out what it is next hi i'm court lane vp of animation development at marvel and i'm listening to the down and nerdy podcast well nerds it's time we take a crowbar to that treasure chest of my childhood and it's time for what james no And as I teased at the end of our review of Spider-Man Homecoming, listen, I love Goosebumps as a kid. I had all the books. They were really actually the first books I got into that were non-picture books when I was a kid. And I still remember the first book I got was uh, Werewolf and Fever Swamp, and I finished that book in a night. And now IDW, our friends over at IDW, are once again giving me some more of my childhood by saying, you know what, we're going to do some Goosebumps comics. They're going to be three-issue arcs with brand-new stories and rotating creative teams. I love this, man. I'm excited for this. Yeah, and I mean, what about what better way to celebrate 25 years, right, than to do something like this? And, you know, I, when I saw this, I was like, I can't believe nobody's thought to to kind of do this already. But, they're, but now they're actually going to be doing it. And it's funny because... When you actually look uh, at, at the actual press release, it's they're, they're saying that it's you know it's kind of still going to be for young readers and it's going to give you the funny scares, which is what I kind of always liked about Goosebumps as well. And I recently found out that my wife's a big Goosebumps fan too, so she's pretty excited about this as well. So we're going to get, like you said, three issue arcs apiece. I think that's really really smart because then that way it gives you a chance to tell a whole bunch of stories and it also tells the reader right away. This is going to be three issues, then we're moving on to the next one, and then the next one, because I think that's kind of the best way to tell stories like this, and I think that we've found that out in other horror series that we've read in the past. Well, I know we talked about this last week with John Carpenter going to sci-fi and signing that Universal deal last week. This is the best way to tell horror stories in in an anthology platform where you can mix and match these stories. You know, sometimes you can connect them, sometimes you don't have to, but... It all works out. And, of course, the first Goosebumps storyline is to be called Monsters at Midnight. It's going to kick off with writer Jeremy Lambert, who, of course, did the Attack on Titan anthology. And also doing art for that is going to be Chris Fenagilo, who does X-File Origins, which is actually a really well-done book. And it's going to be really awesome to see. As you mentioned, they're going to give you that childhood scares. That's what Goosebumps was. Yeah, yeah. actually, some of the stuff was pretty scary. I mean, Slappy did scare the shit out of me. He kind of still does to this day. I'm not going to lie. But, uh... Overall, I, I like this. I like that they're doing this. And again, we talk about this resurgence of stuff from our childhood. You know, for us, in you know, especially you, is Castlevania, which is now on Netflix. You know, and for me, we're getting goosebumps. So it's really cool seeing things from the '80s and the '90s get these these you know new adaptations. I think it's really really cool. 
Yeah, and I mean, anytime you can get more R.L. Stein, I don't think it's a bad thing. And I think introducing a, a whole new generation of kids to that is also not a bad thing. And then you throw in, you know, artists that would probably do very good variant covers for something like this. I mean, you're talking about a guy like Derek Charm, who, who we've seen work on Powerpuff Girls in the past. And then Drew Rausch, you know, some IDW mainstays doing these variant covers. And we often talk about how variant covers can sometimes kind of be an also-ran. But when you talk about these, you're talking about adding even more creativity to stories that are already creative in the first place. So I actually think that that's a good, another good move by IDW and also kind of making it a little bit more of a collector's item than it would have been like the old books were. Well, speaking of the old books, what's going to be interesting with some of these variant covers, we're going to see what they're going to look like, you know, later on. I'm going to be interested to see if they do kind of, as I mentioned, the first storylines are called Monsters at Midnight. It's going to take place at Horrorland, which was, of course, one of the names of one of the books, which is called Escape from Horrorland. So it's going to be interesting to see if they do, like, the old-school 90s Goosebumps covers on some of these books, which is going to be really awesome. If you do one with Slappy, you have Night of the Living Dummy, and it's the original cover, like, on the hardcover books. It's going to be pretty awesome if they do that. But maybe instead of it saying Night of the Living Dummy at the bottom, it says the name of whatever the story Slappy's, you know, involved in and stuff like that at well, the bottom. It's funny you should say that because think about what IDW does with, say, their Orphan Black comics yeah. or Winona Earp. You always get, like, the TV version cover, you know, like the, they call it cinematic covers sometimes where you get, you know, the characters from the shows or the movies on there. Well, in this case, there's precedent for that, so you certainly very well could be getting that, and I know that that would fill up your bookshelf pretty quickly. Yeah, it would. Now, listen, I want to say something real quick, too. As we mentioned... This is a series that was created by R.L. Stein. Right? I'm seeing people saying, well, I'm not impressed if R.L. Stein's not writing anything for this. Listen, if you don't like that R.L. Stein's not writing for this, who knows, maybe he might write something later on. We don't know what their plans are later on down the line. But you always have the books. You can go back and read the books. Right. Like, that, that's the thing. Or watch the show if you want. You know, that's, that's kind of the, my only issue with this is that and it's not IDW, it's more the the readers and the fans of Goosebumps that are like, well, if the original person's not attached, I don't want anything to do with it. Fine. More comics for us then because right. you can just stick to the books. Right. Make it easier to get it in my poll box then. Right. I mean, obviously <laughs> we want people to buy the hell out of this, but I mean, if you're really that hung up on it, you know what? Sometimes some of the best stuff can come from people that were fans of the original and just have waited so long to pay homage to something that they love, like you said, in their childhood, or maybe they just grew up around it in some way and fell in love with it. Sometimes, you know, people write fan fiction. This takes that to the next level because you have people that are in the business who are already really, really good at what they do now paying tribute to something that they loved in the first place. And sometimes, I mean, look what you talked about Castlevania. Look what Addy did with that, something that he grew up loving, and look what he was able to turn that into. Why can't we see creators do the same thing with these Goosebumps books? Exactly. And moving on from books, we're going to go to television as, of course, the Emmy nominations came out. And the reason why we're talking about this is because, you know, we talk about cord cutting all the time. We talk about technology. This is a nerd show, after all, so we do talk about technology. And holy shit, streaming services. Wow, did they kick the shit out of cable television in these things. Yeah, and I think this ball started rolling years ago with HBO when they were finally eligible for the Emmys after being shut out for so long. And then HBO said, all right, you know what? Our first year, we're just going to kick your ass then because you kind of left us out of the party. And now Netflix is doing that and Hulu's doing that. And, and you just scroll through these nominations that just came out. 
it's like there isn't a single category that doesn't have a multitude of nominations from streaming services or HBO. Let's put it this way. The only broadcast network that's in the best drama category is NBC for This Is Us. Everything else, streaming service. This is huge because HBO also leads. They have the most nominations for uh, Westworld, which received 22 total nominations, which is a tie with Saturday Night Live. So think about that. A show that literally like a year or so ago hit the airwaves or you know the internet, if you will, for streaming – is now tied for total nods with a show that's been around since like the 70s. Yeah, exactly. And think about this too. I mean, Netflix dominating with stuff like The Crown, of course, Stranger Things, both of which were really, really good. And, you know, House of Cards isn't going away either. Let's let's put that in mind. As a matter of fact, first time that they were actually eligible to be nominated, House of Cards was. House of Cards ends up winning in its, I think, its first season ever. They ended up winning some awards. So this has kind of been where we're going with this. And I think part of it, at least from the streaming services anyway, I think part of it is if you flood the market enough with stuff, you're bound to have stuff stick and get nominated. And of course you've, you've also got stuff like orange is the new black. So you're not really surprised at some of the stuff that's in here, but the sheer multitude of things that Netflix has and Hulu starting to build their library as well you know that some of it's going to be really groundbreaking. And, you know, some of it's good, but not to the nomination level. But the fact that there's so, so many, it doesn't really surprise me that they're able to do this because they're focusing on their product year-round, whereas broadcast networks really kind of don't do that. Yeah, broadcast is more, I would say, on a a season-to-season base. But you talk about flooding the market, James. CEO Reed Hastings, you know what he said? He said that Netflix plans to invest $6 billion on original content, and that number will climb, quote, a lot. So, my God, man. I mean, you want to talk about flooding the market? They're putting in $6 billion in original content. Of course, we talked about, you know, Castlevania. But what we talked about last week, Assassin's Creed, and how yeah. that's going to get an anime, and how that could be coming to Netflix. So we'll see what happens. And it's going to be really interesting because here's the thing, man. You look at these numbers. Two years ago, Netflix earned 92 fewer nominations than HBO. This year, just 19 fewer. That is a big, big jump. I know a lot of it is because Netflix said, you know, again, they're going to put $6 billion into original content and also how they want like 50% or more to be at least original content. And I know back back when we talked about this, first talked about this, we were kind of worried about it. But seeing the stuff they're pumping out with Voltron, with Castlevania, all this other great content, possibly Assassin's Creed, I'm excited because for me as a cord cutter, this is why I cut the cord in the first place because I got all this great stuff, all this Emmy-nominated stuff for 10 bucks a month, and it's amazing. And I think that part, the, one of the biggest parts about this is, and I think this is where a lot of broadcast networks are failing, and I understand because you know of money issues. I totally get that, but Netflix is unapologetically not afraid to go with niche programming. They are absolutely not afraid to do something like The Crown, like Stranger Things, and go, you know what? This We, we assume that this is going to appeal to a certain audience, and that's what we're doing. And if it gets more mass appeal than that, then that's great. That's, that's kind of what we're hoping for. But they are not afraid to do something 
for a specific niche, whether it be a certain fandom or what have you. And that's what a lot of broadcast networks are just afraid to do. And you talk about niche and fan bases. One of the biggest fan bases, of course, is the Beatles fan base. And Hulu, in addition to 13 Nods, its first original documentary, The Beatles, Eight Days a Week, the touring years earned five nominations. So bringing this total to 18, also one thing on The Beatles, making this even more of a nerd thing, they're going to get their own comic series as well from Titan soon. So it's going to be pretty awesome to see how streaming has just kicked it up a notch. And, you know, Amazon's still there too, which has 16 nominations yep. as well. Yep. And you had, the, the, you had the trailer for the tick drop this week. So here's the thing, man. We're seeing this program that we talked about a while back about how, you know, sci-fi has gotten more mature with the magicians and why not Earp and you're seeing, starting to see networks kind of push that envelope into what, language can be said, what scenes can be shown in, in cable, well, that's because streaming can do basically anything they, they want. Right. And so you have these networks that are saying, well, shit, if this if Netflix can show this type of a scene, we got to be able to push that limit and get to near or at least where it is in terms of what we can show and what we can say. So really, in a sense, these streaming services, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, HBO Now, have really, really grabbed television networks and said, okay, here's where we are. You step your game up now. And that's what I love about this. This is why I love about these types of things that they create competition. It's all about who can make the best programming, who can make, win the most awards. And we are finally getting that. Because for, for so long, man, I mean, in the 80s and the 90s, like HBO was one of those things where like if your family was well off, at least, or if you're well in the middle class, you didn't have HBO or mm-hmm. Showtime or anything. You were lucky, you know, if they have you had those things. Now, hey, here's HBO for like ten bucks a month. Thanks, HBO. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. You know, so I mean, it's really, really awesome, man. And I know you have a son, and so it's be really cool that for him, especially, to have all these things at his fingertips at such a young age. Right, and not only are they starting to dominate stuff like this, I mean, you just look at the schedule for Comic-Con and all of the stuff that's coming to SDCC. With, I mean, they're going to have a tick takeover, so Amazon's got that going for them. You've got Netflix invading the hell out of Hall H this year with, you know, Death Note and Bright, and then you've also got Stranger Things and the Defenders and stuff like that. And then Hulu's got Future Man that they're bringing. I mean, you're seeing streaming services. They're taking over, man, and, and it's exactly what you said. It's looking at the broadcast networks and going guess what now you've got some serious competition and it's good because it's either going to force them to step up their game or get stomped down because they didn't not to mention hey more of these original content that comes from netflix and hulu and stuff the more comics we get so win for us right exactly It's, it's all a huge circle of wonderful nerdiness that we're getting Exactly. Speaking of wonderful nerdiness, we went to my childhood during Nerd News, but coming up next, we're going to dive into James's childhood as we're going to be joined by Shally Fish, who, of course, is the writer of Dynamite's Mighty Mouse series. Stay tuned. Our interview with Shally Fish is coming up next. Hi, this is writer Mark Miller, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You know exactly how I'm going to start this, right? We are here to save the day and talk about one of my favorite comic book and cartoon characters, of all time, it's Mighty Mouse, and we just happen to have the writer of maybe a lot of your favorite cartoon characters, actually, Shally Fish. Shally, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? You're doing very well. As a matter of fact, anyone who's listened to this show, Shally, knows that not only have I been a big, big Mighty Mouse fan for a long time, I've always wondered why he didn't have his own comic 
for so long. So I know there were some releases in the past from Marvel and Dell and other publishers, but why do you think it's taken so long to bring Mighty Mouse back to comics? Well, I mean, I think it's as simple as, um, you know, the last time that he had a series was because there was also a TV show, a new TV show on there. And there hasn't been a new Mighty Mouse show since then. And I think it's, you know, just that. It's people thinking, well, these are old cartoons, but with everything coming back these days, there's no reason why Mighty Mouse shouldn't also. And Shelly, speaking of television, we're seeing a lot of classic cartoons lately get, you know, reboots and adaptations across various platforms, especially television. So outside of art style, what do you believe is the biggest difference between cartoons of TV's past and, and modern day, especially when they get rebooted? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, that really depends on what you mean by past, you know. So if you're talking about the really classic old 1930s, 1940s movie theater cartoons like like Mighty Mouse or Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse or any of that stuff. That's one answer. If you're talking about cartoons from like the 1970s, say, Hanna-Barbera and those things, then that's a different answer because, you know, all of this stuff goes through different uh, different cycles, different trends. And in my day job, I do educational TV and other stuff like that. So I've really been part of both worlds for a lot of years. Compared to the really old stuff, uh, you know, what you find today is you find, in a lot of ways, it's going back to what it was. Originally, back in the 30s and 40s, uh, this stuff was happening, was being shown in movie theaters. And so it's being shown to an audience that had at least as many adults as kids in it. And so you would have, you know, lots of Bugs Bunny cartoons with topical references and things that adults would get that kids wouldn't and stuff like that. As time went on and cartoons became more geared toward kids per se, then you got a lot more kid-oriented stuff. And then you got a certain period, probably in the late 70s and 1980s, where you had really, really heavy standards and practices. And so... You know, one of the things that I realized when I was doing Hong Kong Fui issue of Scooby-Doo Team-Up recently, and I watched a bunch of old Hong Kong Fui cartoons, is with all of his kung fu and all of that, he never hits anybody or anything, which is not the sort of thing you would find today. You know, today, people can hit each other, people can break things, people can do stuff like that. So you see a lot of that sort of, sort of stuff that's stylistic. Then the other thing that happens is, Nowadays, you got a whole lot more anime influence, uh, and so you got a lot of that stuff in, too. And then the, the last thing is something that nobody would realize, I don't think, who doesn't work in the industry, which is a technology issue. Um, as animation has moved from 2D cell animation to 3D um, CGI, there are different kinds of things that are easy and hard to do in 2D versus 3D animation. So when you've got 2D cell animation, if you want to change a character's clothing, it's really easy. You just draw it differently. Uh, if you want to do it in, in CGI, you have to do whole new models for the character. Uh, on the other hand, if you want a character to, say, turn around, that's really easy in CGI and really hard in cell animation. So as a result, there are all these little technical things going on that work differently in cartoons nowadays than they ever did before. But, you know, unless you're really paying close attention to it or unless you're somebody who has to actually do it, uh, 
uh, you don't realize any of it. So for me, when I'm writing this stuff, I try to do a little blend of everything, you know. So I'll I'll try to make these things feel as classic as possible. So that Mighty Mouse, when I'm writing them, feels like Mighty Mouse way back when. And Bugs Bunny, when I'm writing them, feels like Bugs Bunny way back when, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, incorporate, you know, kind of a little more modern sort of meta sensibility and and a little more in-jokey adult sensibility so that the comics are as much fun for the grown-ups to read as it is for the kids. And they so that's a really are... long-winded answer to a short question. Sorry. No, that, that's, that's, the, that's a great answer, actually, and that's exactly what we were looking for. And matter of fact, I want to touch on something that you just said, because we talked to someone I know you're familiar familiar with, illustrator Robert Pope. You've worked with him in the past on some books. Oh, I love Robert. And he talked about the urge to kind of want to put his own spin on classic animation characters, but wanting to give the people what they wanted. So did you and Igor Lima have any discussions about that with this book and ultimately deciding to go with the classic look or was that kind of the plan all along well that i mean that was really what came from dynamite um and and from the licensors too um you know because obviously they have to approve everything so uh i know there was a little bit of conversation early on about whether mighty mouse in the real world should continue to look like cartoon mighty mouse or maybe a little bit more realistic sort of a mouse or something but um you know, but the licensor felt very strongly, as you'd expect, that they wanted their characters to look like their characters. So, so that was all pretty much set. And then it was really a question of saying, okay, so if this is what we're working with, how do we make the most of that? And one of the things that I love about what Igor has been doing is um, he's really been drawing this thing in three different styles. Um, he's got one style that's a cartoony style for Mighty Mouse and for everything in Mouseville. He's got one style that's a much more realistic style for the real world. And then he's got this in-between sort of manga-ish style for the comics that Joey, the, the real world kid, um, draws himself, his own homemade comics. And, you know, that's not easy to do, uh, to draw in several different styles in the same comic and also make them all work together. But he's managed to do it. And at the same time, because we've got these different styles next to each other, it really makes Mighty Mouse look out of place in the real world and kind of emphasizes that whole aspect of it that's such a big part of the series, as you know, you'll see in a couple of days when number two comes out. Exactly. And of course, you know, speaking of that art style, it, it when you talk about it, Mighty Mouse does look more like a fish out of water. Of course, in issue two, we see that Mighty Mouse learns how the real world is much different from Mouseville, which I thought was, I know James did too, was hilarious in the way it's being explained to him. So when you're writing a story like this where you have a character who is very fish out of water, what to you is the most important rule that you feel that you must follow as a writer? Ooh, that's a really good question. The most important rule... Well, apart from, like, don't run with scissors. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess the most important rule is be true and consistent to both of them. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I played fast and loose with those boundaries, uh, it wouldn't work. Uh, you really need to have the real world be the real world and the cartoon world be the cartoon world and i would say never the twain shall meet except of course that here they do which is why issue one is set up the way it is to really not just introduce the characters 
but really introduced the two worlds and set all of that up. And yes, uh, that scene where Joey's explaining to Mighty Mouse how the real world works is one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. So I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah, that was really hilarious. We're talking to Charlie Fish, writer of Mighty Mouse Comics for Dynamite. Make sure you get issues number one and two at your local comic book shop or online retailers. Now, Charlie, we've been talking a lot about Mighty Mouse being brought into the real world in this book. So, I mean, I guess that kind of begs the question. If you could bring one animated hero, whether you've worked with them or not, into the real world right now, who would it be? Wow. Oh, just one? Well, I mean, if they're a team already. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just it's a really tough call because it really kind of depends on on what mood I'm in and and what I need them for. I mean, there are times when... (laughs) And which version of the character it is. You know, there's versions of Batman that I would love to bring into the real world and there's versions of Batman that I just stay away from. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, I guess if I had to pick just one, well, all right, I'll narrow it down to three. Because um, my my favorite superheroes at this point in my life are Captain, the original Captain Marvel and Plastic Man. Uh, and either of them would be a lot of fun. And my favorite cartoon character of all time is Bugs Bunny, so he would always be fun. But it also, I mean, a lot of it really comes down to whoever I'm working on and having the most fun with right now. See, for me, I'm not much of a world domination type of mindset, so if I can get Marvin the Martian in here anytime, it'd be great. <laughs> not to mention... You, as long as it's on your side, yeah. Right, yeah, right. there's that, yeah. You don't hear too many people bring up Plastic Man, though. I no. love that answer. Yeah, oh, Plastic Man is one of my all-time favorite characters, and it's why I got to write him a couple times when I was doing Batman Brave and the Bold, which was an enormous amount of fun, but... I just wrote him, or I just wrote him, and and the issue just came out a couple weeks ago in Scooby Doo Team Up, um, and I got to write him as just classic Golden Age Plastic Man with woozy winks and all that stuff, and you know it's stuff like that, and Mighty Mouse is like that too, where you know when it's stuff that is something that I just have loved since I was a kid. You know, if I could go back in time and tell my five-year-old self that I, I someday I was going to be writing Mighty Mouse, you know, my head would explode. So. Go back to your younger self, because one of the most famous Mighty Mouse moments, of course, was in 1975 when Andy Kaufman, he lip, you know, of course, famously lip-synced the theme from SNL. The video's all over the place. So if you could pick any major venue, the Coliseum, Madison Square Garden, to lip-sync the theme from a sold-out <laughs> crowd, where would Shally Fish perform? Wow. Well, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, while writing the series, I was doing that constantly for months um, and singing that song because I know all the words. So I've just been <laughs> singing that song for months. And at one point it got so bad that, yes, I did go to YouTube and pull up the Andy Kaufman video. But, you know, it, it, there are worse songs that could be stuck in my head for four or five months. So it's not that bad. Uh, where would I sing it? Hmm. Um, you know, I'm a little bit torn. I'm a little bit torn between trying to go for the, the, the quietest, most conservative spot I can think of and going the exact opposite. So <laughs> you can give us both if you want. Yeah. So let's, let's say, let's say Times Square in the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> We need someone to deliver this mass, and all of a sudden, Shelly comes out. Here I come to save the day. 
more opposite places. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> Mighty Mouse in the Popemobile. Uh, now, is he in it or is he carrying it, flying it through the sky? That's the question. I think the ladder. I think he's doing the ladder. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> wow. Oh. Well, as. It's going to be hard to get that image out of my head, but here's another thing. <laughs> here's another thing that we've kind of seen a lot in, in comics and in TV, as a matter of fact. We've seen time travel kind of cause a lot of problems in comics, but Mighty Mouse's arrival in the real world seems to have caused some very big problems in issue two. So, Shali, try not to spoil anything. How much will Joey's knowledge of Mighty Mouse's world in Mouseville be a factor in the story going forward? Yeah, well, it's going to be a huge factor. And if you think it's causing trouble in number two, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. Every issue, the stakes get higher and higher. So by the time we get to issue number five, without saying too much to spoil it, both the real world and ma- and the cartoon world are in dire danger. And the only ones who can save them are, you know, this 11-year-old kid and a cartoon mouse. So... Joey is going to be a huge part of all of that and the implications of that both for their relationship, the two of them, and Joey's relationship with the other folks in his world are all going to be impacted by that. I mean, this has been a wonderful series to read. The first two issues to, I know to us have been fantastic. So without spoiling anything, as the series progresses into future issues, three, four, five, What's something that you've done or you're crafting for those future issues that may surprise and shock readers? Who surprise and shock? Well, see, now the problem is if I tell you, then it won't surprise and shock anybody. Um, <laughs> that, that is true. Yeah. So let me think what I can say that uh, that won't give too much away, but that'll be kind of interesting. We're basically going to see everything from confrontations with the bullies to confrontations with an entire alien invasion. We're going to see just what happens as more people become aware uh, that Mighty Mouse is here, um, including, say, the police and the army. We're going to see what happens when Joey's mom finds out. We're going to be seeing a whole lot of stuff. And what happens when each of those things happen, when each of those things takes place, is not necessarily what you're expecting. Guys, we're being serious right now. If you want a story that's unique and refreshing and with a classic character that you love as well, get Mighty Mouse. Put it in your pull box. Issues one and two, make sure you get those at your local comic book shops or online retailers, whichever you decide to do. It's writer Shally Fish. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thanks for having me. Nom Satana, Nomen de Patria Spiritus Santi, here I come to save the day. Amen. <laughs> I'm legit worried we might have just summoned something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to check the house and make sure we don't have a, a cartoon mouse flying around in here somewhere. Right, but can I just say this? My favorite interviews that we do on the show, of course, we've done a bunch of them, and they've all been great. My favorite ones are the ones where we get a history lesson, and I feel like we learn something at the end. Like, for example, the school I went to, they offered animation. I did not know that 
when you do 3D animation, if you want to say, oh, I'm giving this character a shirt and I'm, you put a jacket on him, then you say, oh, wait, I want to give him a tie. You can't just, like, add it in there. Mm-hmm. Or you say, oh, oh I will give him this, these pants. But I want him to have holes in them now or certain, you know, styles or whatever of clothing. You have to scrap the entire model. It's not layered. It's not like, you know, an audio or whatever where you can just hit undo and the audio comes back. Or you Photoshop something, you add layers of stuff. Like you have to scrap the entire project. And even in 2D, where it's like, where, you know, he talked about, hey, if you want a character to turn around or move quick, 2D is a pain. And I mean, I love hearing that stuff. I just also love going back in time and just talking about cartoons from like the 60s and the 70s mm-hmm. and that Hanna Barbera era and stuff like that. Especially because now you see the Jetsons are getting a an adaptation where it's live action. So it's going to yeah. be kind of, you know, interesting to see how that pans out, especially, you know, since it was a cartoon from years ago. And I mean, if, if you guys aren't familiar with Charlie Fish's work, I mean, just go ahead and go on Comic Vine or any website that gives you all these, the information on works that people have done. I mean, he's worked on Batman titles. He's worked on Scooby-Doo's. He's worked on the Looney Tunes. I mean, this guy's done a lot of different characters that you that you probably grew up with. And then you see Mighty Mouse get added to the list. You just see his name attached and you instantly know it's legit because this is a guy that's not only been there, done that, but actually has clearly a love for all of these characters. And that's what you want. And I think that was presented in the history lesson that we just got. And again, it's so fun, man. I, I loved talking to Shali about just, again, the art and the characters and what, you know, I love that they kept Muddy Mouse, that classic look. You know, we talked about how, yeah, we were talking about whether he goes to the real world, if he looks like a real mouse. Like, I love that they kept him like that. I love yep. that they kept him his Mouseville cartoonish 60s style of animation because, again, you're mixed when, and he hit it perfectly too when I talked about, you know, kind of that rule where you don't want to mix the worlds, you know, and stuff like that. He, I love that, you know, he sticks out like a sore thumb, basically, you know, and it's really great. Does. And, and when you guys pick up issue two, you'll see there's a specific scene there in issue two where he still sticks out even though he thinks he doesn't kind of thing. Oh, it's hilarious. It, it's brilliant. You guys are really going to love it. It's hilarious and it's kind of cute at the same time. It is. It really was. It's it's it's, it's adorable <laughs> as fuck, basically. It really is. <laughs> and that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Shally Fish for coming on and talking to us about Mighty Mouse from Dynamite. Again, go pick up issues one and two. They're both wonderful. They're funny. They're classic, and they're just a fun, fun read. But, hey, guess what? Next week we're going to be at San Diego Comic-Con. That's right, our first time being there. So we're going to have all the live updates. We're going to have photos. We're going to have everything from San Diego Comic-Con. So we have a fun, fun trip. We're looking forward to it. But, hey, if you want more of us before we go to San Diego for Comic-Con, be sure to hit us up. Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. Also, we're on Twitter at Down and Nerdy 757. You can reach me on Instagram, Twitch, and Twitter at Merc with One Arm. I'm at James Ace Witham on Twitter. That's W I T H A M. You can follow all of our posts on our website as well, Down and Nerdy Podcast. Dot com. We're just going to have a lot of stuff, guys. You know how we cover San Diego Comic-Con usually. And this is going to definitely kick it up a little bit more of a notch as well. So we're going to be giving you as much information and coverage as we can just on our social media pages, on our website as well. Interviews will be coming too. All Fast and Furious. Next week's show also going to be a little different. Downandnerdypodcast.com. 
And as always, pay safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.